Kevin is going to be preaching for us um, from Psalm 137. Kevin is our lead pastor. And that's going to be on page 521 of your Seatback Bible. Um, so if you would stand with me, we will read, I will read Psalm 137 on page 521. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required us of songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Kevin, if you want to come up, I will pray. Father, I ask that you would be with Kevin as he preaches from your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work through him, opening our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your word. May we be transformed by the gospel into your likeness. I pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks, Lily. We gave her a few thousand things to announce today. <laughs> she did a great job. Well, it's good to be back up here. Um, I can't express how thankful I am for our, our preaching team. Um, we've sent out a lot of great preachers over the years. I think our depth chart right now, um, don't tell any of those other guys, but I think it might be the best it's ever been. But one thing that I really get a lot of joy from is when people come up to me and say that preaching has been awesome all summer, and I've literally not really been a, a foot close to it. So, But I am excited to get back, back into it. A few years back, I remember talking all the time about the beauty of the Psalms, about what a gift they are to God's people, how they're God's prayer book, how they're the church's songbook, and how we should be in them really every day, inhaling them like air, exhaling them back as prayers, as songs to God. And then it hit me, I thought, well, if that's the case, why don't we ever preach these songs? Right? And so then we started this rhythm of once a month stepping out of our current series, which right now is Matthew, and walking through one of these songs together. And I think it's just been great. Why do we need this book so much? Well, as Eric put it way back in our intro sermon to this book, he said the Psalms connect the dots between every part of us. So in these pages, we see the full range of human emotions. We see the writers, mainly David, but others, taking their lowest lows and their highest highs to the Lord. I want you to hear, Eric, how he puts it. The Psalms are good news for the anxious or depressed, for those living with the pain of fractured relationships or living through serious instability and insecurity. They are a refuge for infertile couples who watch friends get pregnant for the second, third, or fourth time. They are a consolation to the faithful employee who watches a corner-cutting co-worker get the promotion that should have been theirs. The Psalms don't say we're always right. They give us permission to feel every bit of our feelings under the sheltering wing of the God who loves us. Now, we've been doing this for quite a while, and I've actually never taken on one of these myself. 
And I'm excited to do that today, so I just thought, you know, why not, why not start out with a really easy one? <laughs> but when we get to passages like this in the Bible, we can really do one of two things. We can ignore them, maybe even rip them right out, or we can admit the fact that we're finite and frail, that we're fallen and foolish in so many ways, and then we can choose to receive them from God. From our God who's, who's bigger and better than us. Better than we could ever imagine. And I would just say, if we don't have a God who's big enough to shape our positions and question our opinions, then we don't have much of a God at all. We've really got an idol. We've got a, an image of ourselves. Now, these words today, though they may initially make you cringe, <laughs> I'm convinced that if you hear them clearly, through the eyes of faith, they'll eventually move you to celebrate. Here's why. We felt a lot of big emotions over the past several years, or at least I have. I felt so much pain and sadness, and honestly, so much anger. Think back to the, the knee on the neck of George Floyd. The guy with the horns dancing in the Capitol. All the atrocities going on over in Ukraine, COVID, all the deaths. It's felt like too much to handle at so many points. I felt a lot of big emotions. But what do we do with all this pain? What do we do with all this rage? Psalm 137 and so many of these songs show us that we can take it right to our Lord. God can handle these big emotions. He's not like... Earthly parents like us that will sometimes lose our cool. We can be real. We can be raw with Him. God understands these feelings. He gets our desire for justice that we're going to see here. In fact, we get it from Him. We're made in His image. And He's also ready to forgive when we inevitably go off the rails. He's just. He's kind. It's what He loves to do. He's a good dad. That's just who He is. But I don't, don't want you to start thinking that praying the psalm is somehow bad. Seeing ISIS slashing throats of followers of Jesus, reading the accounts of all the victims of Larry Nasser, Alex Jones telling those Sandy Hook parents that they had made it all up in their heads, these things make us angry, they make us weep, they make us long for God to judge, to end all this pain, or I would say, something's really, really wrong, if not. We need psalms like this. Psalm 137 gives language for the pain and for the anger, for these deep emotions we feel. And so do all the other psalms, what many have called, the other psalms like this, what many have called imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory. It's not a word that you probably heard or used in a while. What's that mean? Well, an imprecation is a curse. Where David and others here ask God to act to judge their enemies. David Pallison once defined this type of song like this. It is a plea that God will do what he has promised to do. Destroy evil and remove everything that harms others and defame God's name. Writer Tish Harrison Warren says it like this. These songs express our outrage about injustice unleashed on others and they call on God to do something about it. Now we bristle, of course, against the idea of praying like this, or certainly the thought of having them accompanied by a tune. But soon in Matthew, we're going to get 
to Jesus calling down curses on the Pharisees, right? Chapter 23. We see Paul in the New Testament, Galatians as an example, cursing the enemies of the gospel. And don't we really see this all the time in our hearts, through our words, to other people's faces? If you think about it, this psalm actually leaves us an example of what to do with all this pain and anger, the right thing to do with all of it. But we'll get to that in, in just a bit. Let's think for a minute about the context of this song. So God's people here are looking back and they're remembering their exile, where they, as a people, are yanked out of their land, they're dragged into Babylon, the land of their enemies, and they as a community had to fight back then to trust on and here they are later looking back as a community again, trying not to forget either their pain or their God. There's just so much I think that we can learn from this song today, but it's one of those that we kind of just like cringe and flip the page. Here we see a song for times when we don't feel like singing. It's a song for the speechless. And within it are three verses of that song. I want to walk through those briefly. In the first stanza, in verses 1 through 3, we hear a painful memory. God's people who have returned from exile remember. They look back on dark days when God's people are by the waters of Babylon. We get to look back to the, the scripture passage again. They're by the waters of Babylon. They're weeping on the shores of what is probably the Euphrates River and all its tributaries. And they're remembering their homeland. They're thinking of the great city Zion, Jerusalem. And really all it represents, God, His people, their land, His promises. And they're heartbroken. They're devastated. So much that they want to hang up their wires, their stringed instruments. So put the guitars back on the rack, put the trumpets back in their cases. They're just so sad. They're so mad. And to make things worse, their captives are standing there taunting them. As Esau Macaulay puts it, they're not just taking away their freedom, they're trying to rob them of their emotions too. So they're saying, sing one of those songs about how God's going to deliver you, LOL, right? Sing for us now. And God's people are thinking back to those days, to all that trauma and hurt, and they remember. In the second stanza, in verses 4 through 6, we see a feeble promise. They vow never to forget. They hear that command to sing these songs, and they respond, I just can't. At least that's what it looks like at first. Or, or do they? They say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now, at first, those words have a ring of despair. But then we read on. And they basically say, they will keep on keeping on. They will not let go. In verse 6, the psalmist says, if I forget Jerusalem, if I forget that city and everything it represents about God, Lord, just make it so I cannot sing anymore. Right? So my tongue just sticks to the roof of my mouth. Verse 5, make it so I can no longer strum those strings. Like my right hand won't remember anymore how to do it. He's calling down curses on himself if he should ever give up. But he says he won't. No, God's city 
God himself will remain his highest joy no matter what. That's this feeble promise never, ever to forget. In the third stanza, in verses 7 through 9, we see a hopeful demand. Here the prayer is, oh God, remember. Remember, Lord, remember those Edomites, those longtime enemies of God who stood alongside and cheered. They went nuts when this was happening. Judge them, Lord. And then the psalmist calls out to Babylon, this evil city that had destroyed their homes, that had dragged them to their land. And he calls out in verse 9. In God's hearing, it says, Blessed be those armies who come along and do the same thing to you, that take your babies and smash their skulls against the stones. So here God's people, they're looking back on that day, they're asking God to act, to bring justice, to remember their pain, and to do something about it. But what do we do about it? About this psalm that seems confusing and disturbing. In this fallen world, where we're east of Eden, we can't see the promised land ahead, it's so easy to be overwhelmed with pain, and just not feel like we can begin to sing. So we often move away from these songs. You know, we forget that these kind of songs exist. Or maybe we do, but we just don't know what to do with them. So we don't turn to the songs, but we rob ourselves of hope. Following that, I think this is something that we've also done in modern worship music. This Old Testament scholar named Michael Rhodes did this survey of the top 25 worship songs. He did it just about a year ago. I think he probably had the same results today. And he came up with this humorous title for the article. Why don't we sing justice songs in worship? Let's swap sloppy wet kiss or break the arm of the wicked man. <laughs> but looking at those top 25 worship songs, he found one passing mention of justice, although it's a major theme in the songs. There's no mention of the poor and the oppressed though they're spoken of constantly as well. There are zero references to the enemies of God despite the presence of so many songs in the book like we're seeing today. And then he says, really troubling, there's not a single question posed to God in any of those tunes. And this is despite the fact that Rhodes says this, prick the Psalter and it bleeds with the cries of the oppressed, pleading for God to act. It's no wonder that we struggle to process our hurts because we sing songs that make it seem like we've got it all together, that we've got everything figured out. It's like we threw out God's songbook and made our own, and then we wonder what's wrong with us. Rhodes says he thinks this is a result of our cushy, comfy, white evangelical culture. We don't know what to do with these words. The data Wortland reminds us of this. He says, the Bible does not summon you to a super spiritual existence, asking you to wade stoically through life above the reach of pain and weeping. The Bible rather gives us categories and language by which to speak and pray our tears to God. We need these songs to process in a healthy way our big feelings. Think about those headings again of those verses that I just walked through. A painful memory. Don't we all have those in the last few years? Stretching back to your childhood. 
Author Pete Scazzaro says that we all, have, we all have these experiences that are under the surface, that have shaped us, that result, they overflow in these emotions we feel, and we just see the tip of the iceberg. Are you willing to get below the surface and deal with your pain? Will you deal with your painful memories, or will you just continue to harden up and never really get to those wounds? The second stanza, A Feeble Promise. Robert Chong explains in that book that, that Liz um, is, is handing out that's been our one reading. He, he explains that the struggles in our lives, the trials we go through, they hover over us like clouds that keep us from seeing the greatness and goodness of God. They keep us from seeing hope. Are you willing to fight to hold on to trust Him? You know, to wait for that clearing, to wait to when you can see the sun again, or will you just turn away and give up? A hopeful demand. As I read this psalm, my mind goes to Lieutenant Dan Taylor in the old but, but famous film Forrest Gump, screaming in the rain at the sky. Now, that's not the place that God wants us to stay, but sometimes it starts that way. Are you willing, though, to hand him your pain, your rage, to give it over to him? Or are you just going to deal with it? Are you going to just go out and battle your enemies yourself, which is so often what happens? And I say, if you commit to those actions, as hard as they are, that we see here in the Psalms, that's what we deeply need. But if we don't, what are you going to do then? Right? Today it's becoming more and more hit to just walk away. And I have compassion for that because, man, this season has been rough. But today you deconstruct, you say you've moved on, you move on to better things, you think. Um, now we can talk about giving up on the Lord, but really we're like a seven-year-old kid who looks at her parents and says she's going to run away and, and God stands there like the father saying, well, honey, then, you know, what's your plan? Where are you going to stay? How are you going to buy food? We're, we're not just running from something. We're running in some direction as well. Not just from, but to. And where that sends us is toward meaningless, toward hopelessness. Maybe you've heard of the, the singer-songwriter Noah Gunderson. Well, he comes from this large Christian family in the Pacific North, Northwest, but at some point he walked away from his faith. And he's been living in rebellion pretty much ever since. But in his most recent album, there's this tune called Exit Signs, which has this really tragic, honest lyric where he says, because if you burn it down, you still get to dance around the ashes like you're not too old to party. But down in the afterglow, all this letting go, it's just another thing you're holding on to. You can walk away, you can give up on your God, but if you burn the house down, you still have to have somewhere to live, and there is no refuge, no shelter other than in Him. See Him here in this song. These verses are God's gift. They're His invitation to bring our deepest hurts, our biggest grievances, our most painful injustices, to him. He welcomes us to come as we are and to quote his promises to him. Did you realize that's what's really happening here? God's promise to judge our enemies and grant us relief, we're just asking God to do what he said he'd do. 
And in the process, we're, we're reminding our souls of those truths. This, this psalm, like so many of the laments in this book, they serve like sort of a trampoline where we bounce down low, really low, into our deepest and darkest pain and spring back up in new confidence, in new hope, leaning on His promises to save us. But again, the church has a weird relationship with Psalms like 137. Again, we struggle with what to do with them. I remember I was having this conversation with another pastor a few years back, a man named Elliot Grudem, about some struggles that I was going through, um, really some betrayal I was feeling. And he looked at me, and he, he, you know, I talked about my pain, and he responded, he says, have you prayed any of the imprecatory psalms? And I remember just looking at him and saying, can I really do that? Really? <laughs> Author Tish Harrison Warren again, in an article entitled, Go Ahead, Pray for Putin's Demise, puts it this way. The imprecatory psalms name evil. They remind us that those who have great power are able to destroy the lives of the weak with seeming impunity. This is the world we live in. We cannot simply hold hands, sing kumbaya, and hope for the best. Our hearts call out for judgment against the wickedness that leaves fathers weeping alone over their silent sons. We need words to express our indignation at this evil. Very often, in the imprecatory psalms, we are asking that God's, that we are asking that people's evil actions would ricochet back on themselves. We're not praying that violence begets more violence or that evil starts a cycle of vengeance or retaliation, but we are praying that people would be destroyed by their own schemes. And as my professor prayed, that bombs would explode in bomber spaces. Wow. Well, you might be gathering up your stuff right now, you know, thinking it's a good time for lunch. Uh, this is hard for us to get our hearts and minds around. But here's what I think our problem is. I think we might be perplexed because of our privilege. Perplexed because of our privilege. Let me explain. One thing that's playing on our family TV far too much is the 2006 film High School Musical. I'm not a fan. I don't know. If, I hope that doesn't hurt anyone's feelings. But I say, you, know, you take a, a good musical like The Sound of Music and you just pour over it a bunch of high fructose corn syrup and you <laughs> bake it for half the directed time in the oven and something like High School Musical is going to come out. Right? I don't need to see Zach Efron dancing and singing in the middle of a basketball court. That is a crime against Broadway. <laughs> But I digress, obviously. There's this character in this film that you may know if you've seen this. Her name's Sharpay, right? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, she's filthy rich. She's always in pink. She's crazy spoiled, always whining, always, you know, perfectly got her appearance together. Now, I don't recommend this as a parenting tactic, right? But from time to time in our home, I'll look at the kids, and I may, especially in a moment of incessant complaining, and I'll refer to him or her by that name, and I'll say, Seriously, Sharpay, I'm sorry that I cannot keep all your favorites on hand. <laughs> right? Sometimes it gets laughs. Usually, angry glares. It's like, oh, Sharpay, you're too fabulous to pick up your trash. I'll get it. It's fine. <laughs> now, I don't want to minimize anybody's pain because, like, I felt it. I, I started that way. But maybe it's our lifestyle that's made it hard for us to identify with these words. 
Think about it. It's not that we don't shed our tears or throw our fits of rage. We do. But more often than not, it's over insignificant things. It's over temporary things. Right? So praying that that guy who burned our meal would be widowed, right? Or the gal who cuts us off in traffic would become childless. Yeah, it seems a little bit too much, right? Esau McCauley has written this terrific book entitled Reading While Black, and he calls Psalm 137 a gift to the African-American church. He says it's a guide in how to process rage resulting from injustice. I'm going to read from him. It's a little bit of a long quote, but it's so good. He says, talking about Psalm 137, these are the words of a people who know rage. A people who know what it is like to turn to those with power, hoping for recompense, only to be pushed further into the mud. These are the words of those who walk past homes and families, living in luxury, knowing that this wealth is bought with the price of their suffering. The oppressor's children live at ease, while children of the oppressed starve. The rich man's wife has the latest fashions, while the oppressed man's wife remains in rags. We must listen to the injustices that give rise to the anger. It is an anger born of powerlessness. It's a cry to the only one who is left to right these wrongs, God. To whom could the battered and bruised of Israel turn if not God? He goes on, what kind of person of faith could ask that babies' heads be dashed by rocks? And in what sense can we receive these texts as a meaningful sense Christian? In response, I ask, what kind of prayer do you expect Israel to pray after watching the murder of their children and the destruction of their families? What kinds of, of words of vengeance lingered in the hearts of black slave women and men when they found themselves at the mercy of their enslavers' passions? Now, these words in Psalm 137, they may come off as odd or even offensive to us. But, like, how do you think they play right now over in Ukraine? It might make a little more sense. Interestingly, a, a version of the Bible printed in 1807 was handed out to slaves. It was, it was recently discovered. It's now referred to as the Slave Bible. And it had a bunch of pages removed that the missionaries thought would incite rebellion. What do you think a massive section was that was torn out? The book of the Psalms. They didn't want them reading Psalms like these and praying for God to act and acting and for God to act and hoping that he'd bring about better days. They didn't want that, so they tore them out. And that's what we often do. We can try to rip out these words, but we shoot ourselves in the foot. If we look at our world around us with clear eyes and soft hearts, we'll find ourselves praying these prayers over all of our sufferings, and yet over the sufferings of others, maybe things we've not experienced ourselves. That sirens might still, sirens might still be going off in your head. Kevin, are you serious, man? Haven't we been reading through the Sermon on the Mount? Isn't that what we've been preaching on? What about love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. How does that square up? You're thinking, Kevin, aren't we supposed to love? Didn't Jesus pray for his enemies, asking God to forgive them? How could we ever sing these words? Speaking of Jesus, as we've talked about in Matthew, he's the point of the whole Bible. In Matthew 5, 17, it makes it clear that he fulfills every word. And he's talking about the whole Old, New, the whole Old Testament. 
The whole thing, every word of it points to Him and finds its purpose in Him. We don't tear these words out and throw them in the trash. We hold them up to His light where we can see them more clearly. So in this auditorium, which I think is really beautiful, you know, you have these beautiful mosaics of stained glass. Um, we can think about the, the Old Testament in this way. Like it shines through one of those, right? Like it shines through them. And Jesus brings that color. He refracts their light. And then it shines on one wall. Like sometimes when you come in here in the middle of the day, you can see all these beautiful colors everywhere. It shines on this wall. And we learn that Jesus, in fact, is the one that will one day come and judge, right? He is gentle and lowly, but that won't always be the case. It's Jesus who will judge. That shines on one side of the room, where he'll defeat God's enemies and bring his people relief. But he also does something else that can see, be seen on a different wall. He dies on the cross and takes the judgment of those who believe. Right? He pays the punishment that we deserve. Listen to words near the end of our Bibles from Revelation 19. This is not a picture of Jesus that people often hear. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe, and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So judgment will come. He'll come on that horse. But there's also mercy in him. That's why his robe is covered in blood. So yes, Jesus changes things and teaches us to forgive, but we're still unconvinced meant to pray this prayer. But, yeah, there's still the elephant in the room, right? Verse 9, a big elephant. I, I say let's feed the elephant, let's pet the elephant, let's talk about it. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. What? Seriously? Well, that's what happened in those days. Right? That's how battles ended. That's the way it was done. You let those who were part of the past, the old people, they got to live. It's those who were the future, the little ones, they got snuffed out. This is what God's people had to witness. It's what conquering enemies did in this day. This is what they did to the people of God. But the psalmist's point here is this. He's saying, Lord, in their reign of terror. Stop it, Lord. Make it cease. May it never happen again. It's surely a metaphor for the writer here, and I think it's certainly for us. Shut them down. Don't let them continue to rape and kill and destroy. Let their bombs blow up in their faces. Bring justice upon our enemies, O oh Lord. And I think there's still a way that we can pray that today. Yeah, on the spiritual enemies of God, but upon those, the most hardened ones that Satan seems to be most working through. 
the woman who slept with your dad and ruined your childhood. Dylan Roof, who shot up that church in Charleston. Vladimir Putin and his armies that are blowing up children, or that man that abused your sister and stole her smile. We ask God to work, to make things right, and give him our pain and rage. As many people have said, this is just praying the closing plea of the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. As others have pointed out, this is just really praying the Lord's Prayer. John Tweedale says this. He says, the imprecatory psalms in particular vocalize Israel's tears in the face of injustice and suffering. To pray the imprecatory psalms and ultimately to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. As Christians, we long for God's kingdom to come. We yearn for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Praying the imprecatory psalms is not a call to arms, but a call to faith. We lift our voices, not our swords, as we pray for God either to convert or curse the enemies of Christ and his kingdom. So how he ends that is so important. On this side of the cross, knowing we're sinners ourselves, we also pray for people's repentance, right? Not just for justice, but for mercy. Think about it. God's justice will come to everyone. Either you'll suffer punishment eternally for hell, in hell, or Jesus is paid for you by his sacrifice on the cross. We pray prayers like this, asking God to sort it all out, knowing that he knows best. I think it's even possible that to pray for God to hold people accountable and to pray that God might grant them repentance even at the same time. Warren again says this, I still pray daily and earnestly for Putin's repentance. I pray that Russian soldiers will lay down their arms and defy the leaders. But this is the moment to take up imprecatory prayers as well. This is a moment when I'm trusting in God's mercy but also in his righteous, loving, and protective rage. Our problem today, hear me here, our problem today isn't that we're praying too many of these prayers. Yeah, we, we, we know the extreme examples of this, um, people that we need to ignore, but our problem today isn't that we're praying too many of these prayers, it's that we're going out there and trying to take matters into our own hands. Like something shifted in the last couple of years where now it's, it's hip, it's respected to just lash out and tear people down, whether you're in a restaurant or on Facebook. These are prayers. They're not plans for punishment. Taking this pain and giving it to God is not just a way to call down fire from heaven. It's a way to extinguish it in our own hearts. Giving it to God is actually the pathway to forgiveness. Jesus was dashed against the rocks. God's one and only Son, so we don't have to be. And we who do believe know that we too deserve that end. So it fills us with gratitude that will spill over in mercy and love. And yes, it makes us people who little by little, little, more and more love our enemies, like our Lord, and pray for those who hurt us. And it makes us people that don't have to go around cracking skulls ourselves. You might have heard of my wife's story. At 12 years of age, her mom died from a failed tonsillectomy. The doctor basically bailed, you know, botched the surgery, and she bled to death in front of my wife and her brother. 
Amy's dad got them an insurance settlement that she used almost in a prodigal son kind of way to drown away the sorrows that came as a result. But looking back as a Christian, she felt guilt about that. It's, it filled her with compassion. She somehow found the doctor's number, left him a message, and then one day, out of the blue, randomly, months later, he called, and Amy got to tell him how she had forgiven him. She got to share the gospel of Jesus. She could have gotten even. I'm sure in her own way, you know, she prayed kind of the prayer that we've seen here. Um, that's how everyone works today. Let's get back. Let's get what we're due. But she got to display the love of Christ. As Esau Macaulay puts it in that book, the sword gives birth to the sword, but the cross breaks the wheel. We need these words desperately in America today because we're still living in, in Babylon. We are. If you, if you read the Bible from front to back, Jerusalem Babylon becomes symbolic of the city, the kingdom of God and of, of man. We're still in Babylon, right? Have you thought about the fact that we're, we're also in exile? That's how the New Testament writers refer to it, exile. We're not in our home. We're waiting for a new world to come. Things are tough. It seems like things are tougher all the time. And until that day when God's rescue is complete... We need a community around us to help us not forget to sing songs with, to pray prayers with, and remind us that God is good, that God is in control, and He is with us no matter how hard things may seem. And we need these songs. Back to that first sermon in the series. Um, it was actually January 2020. I don't think we knew what was coming and what we needed. Eric's second point was this. The songs get the songs of Jesus stuck in our head. So good. Jesus is the one who can truly pray these prayers and sing these songs. He does it on our behalf. He's the true, better David. He's felt deeper hurt than we can ever imagine. And through all of that, he can give us this deep relief that we so much want. Zacharias. In summary, throw your longings for justice to Him, no matter how messy, trusting the Lord in Jesus to make all things right. Throw your longings for justice to Him, no matter how messy, trusting the Lord in Jesus to make all things right. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and um, thank you that you, you made us, you know us, you love us, and you just know how to, to speak to us, to give us what we need. Your word is sufficient, it's true, it's such a gift of grace, and we thank you, Lord. And, and I just pray that we will open your word with a sense of, of desperation and need, just a, a sense of excitement to see what you'll teach us and how you meet us in those needs. And, and Lord, um, help us to be a people that take just the, the big feelings to you. Bring them to you without fear, knowing that you love us, and just trusting you to, to help us work through it and, 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 and trust you more. Um, thank you for um, giving us Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name.